Hello and welcome to How To Medieval, the how-to where two guys show you how to do it between the two of them. My name is Ari. And I'm Matt. And today we're going to talk about dumb questions and how... No, no, not dumb questions. I'm sorry, is that... Is, is so no stupid, dumb questions. Stupid questions? Foolish questions? Oh, no, no, Misguided no, no, questions? No. No, there are no dumb questions. And that's what we're <laughs> going to talk about. We're going to talk about that there are no dumb questions. And this comes from a conversation that I saw online. It's based off of that. We've all heard these stories of being at a, an event, a public event, where non-reenactors, non-historians are, are, are there, non-academics are there. They come in through, they cycle through. And though we've all heard the story of the guys who are like, oh, is that fire real? And we all laugh and we're like, oh man, people are idiots. What a dumb question. I even did a silly TikTok about the fire being real. <laughs> Except, of course, well, I've never actually been asked if the fire is real. I've never been asked if the fire is real. It's one of those, it's like the those mythical unicorn questions that everyone says, but I don't think it has, anyone's ever actually been asked. You know, maybe, maybe... Years and years and years and years and years ago, there was one person, and yeah, it became it's the it's the big it's the it's the Bigfoot, it's the cryptid, it's the 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 idea of the cryptid, dumb public viewer, and we we all like to la like laugh and like just it's like uh, but what this ended in this conversation though of about how it's important to try to figure out and distill what people are actually asking when they ask you questions like that because somebody may ask you you know is that fire real and you know, they, they know the fire's real i mean they can see that there's smoke coming off of it they can sometimes feel that there's heat coming off of it they know that it's real i but it's so we need to figure out what they're actually asking instead of just sort of and, and people can be bad at asking questions sometimes asking good questions is a skill, a skill that needs to be learned and honed and, and practiced. And that's why journalists go to school to learn to ask questions and to dig out information. So it's not something that's innate to everyone, knowing how to ask the right questions. So you may get a, is the fire real? Or I was asked once, is your armor real or is it plastic? And I suppose that's a valid question once you step back from what sounds ludicrous about it is because think about anyone who's watched the behind the scenes of Lord of the Rings and how much like ABS foam and such was used to outfit the legions of background characters. You know, there were 90% of the orcs on screen since they never got closer to the camera to really matter didn't wear metal armor. Now, there was lots of real metal armor in that movie, and it was lauded for using, like, especially the hero outfit. Like, that's the, I think that's the term they use in, in the movies. You've got your hero version of the prop, which is the one that's used, like, way up close for, yeah. like, the close-up shots. And then you've got all the other versions, like the ones made of foam that you can throw around and break and no one cries. And most of the people in the on set wore that. And so it's not... And, you know, the proliferation of... of LARPing and cosplay and people who can make Iron Man suits out of vacuum molded plastic that looks like it was made out of metal. Like it's not people that can make Iron Man suits out of duct tape and cardboard that looks like it's an actual like <laughs> polycarb, yeah. whatever it is. 
Yeah, it, it's and as technology and 3D printing technology advances, I mean, probably you are fairly soon going to be able to see fully 3D printed suits of armor. I mean, I, I would actually love to get like a 3D printed version of like Henry VIII's field tournament armor that they have at the Met just to display. I mean, that'd be awesome. That'd be, that'd be really cool. But yeah, so this idea of, you know, 3D printed or plastic molded or cosplayer or, or the background props is valid and it's pervasive and, and everyone knows who uses these things. So yeah, you might get a question like, is your armor real? And, and there's a couple of ways that you can, you can go about it. And you can either be the jerk and laugh at the person. And I don't recommend that one at all. Please don't do that. Yeah, please don't do that. It just gives, it gives us all a bad name. It gives every single reenactor out there a bad name. You can take it like, yeah, of course it's real. It's made out of metal and, and move on to the next thing. Or you can try to distill what they're actually talking about. You know, it's like, you can be like, well, do you mean, is this, is this real as in this, is, is this metal? And yeah, yeah, it's, it's a real suit of armor. It's protective. It's made to fit me. Or do you mean, is this authentic in it's a design or if it's an authentic piece. I mean, I've had kids ask me when looking at a sword, is that a real sword? Well, they can see that it's metal. They can see, I just chopped a watermelon in half with it. They can see that it's sharp. They don't know how to ask, is it authentic? Or is it an authentic article? Or is it really a medieval sword that I found somewhere and bought and I'm using a, a real medieval artifact sword in part of my my show so it's there's levels and layers that you can dig into and and, and delve into and, and learning how to diplomatically pick those apart and tease those out is a skill and hopefully we can go over that a little bit today sure and depending on which timeline you're at some people bring actual extent artifacts to demonstrations and so the question is this a real blank very well as you said might be a poorly worded question of, hey, I just saw this guy and he showed me something that was literally 900 years old. Is this a real blank or is this a reproduction? And that could be the subtext. And I suspect a lot of times the subtext is, is this a reproduction or not? Uh, now, sometimes it is like, is it an actual, a real object? Like I would, I like to bring a, like, a lot of us bring food, but I like to bring display food to events. And so I'll have a basket of you know, vegetables or something sitting around. And if I'm next to, if I'm next to Todd's tent where he has a couple pheasants that are stuffed like taxidermied and hanging up as if they were recently caught. So they're technically, they were real birds, but they're not real as in they have been taxidermied so that they don't rot. But then if I'm standing next to those semi-fake birds with my genuinely pulled out of the ground vegetables, it's a legitimate, are those real vegetables is a legitimate question. Now, the thing about vegetables is that the best thing you can do to prove that they're real is just to take a bite out of one, which I always think gets a, a particularly good crowd reaction. So there's that. The food is, food is an interesting, I mean, I guess the term real and asking, is that real? 
it's a really confusing term because what do they mean by real? Is it edible? Is it a, a fake, fake plastic prop? Is it something that was real to them and would have actually been eaten and used by those people? So it's, there's so much more. And we always say, we've always said context is king. There's always more context to try to draw out for these questions. I like, I like that juxtaposition of having these pheasants that were real pheasants. I mean, that they were real living, running around squawking birds at some point in time. Side note. I love a roast pheasant. Anyone wants to get me a roast pheasant anytime, I will gladly take it. Roast pheasant is but, pretty delicious. Oh my gosh. Water, my mouth is watering already. Anyway, um, before I get sidetracked, I need to eat breakfast, folks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, it, it's... I mean, like, yeah, it's like technically they were real pheasants. They're real pheasants' feathers. They're just taxidermied. You know, the way to answer that, if somebody asks you if those pheasants are real, it's like, are they real? It's like, well... These are taxidermied pheasant props for display, showing what they would have looked like fresh caught. But they would have hunted or, or snared and or shot at and eaten pheasants. And, and they would have hung them up like this to, you know, prep them, to clean them in order to roast them. And, and there's so there's more to that you can go off of than by just by saying, yeah, it's real or no, it's not real. It's a prop, whatever, and then move along. There's always that next step you can take. And I think that's what sets apart really good reenactors. And I'm going to separate the distinction between, because there's like the first, I'm talking about like third person, second person, third person reenactors. I think that's what sets apart really good second person, third person reenactors, where they can always take a question like that and bring it that step further to teach something else instead of just leaving at Oh no, those are just props for display because there's, there's just something else you can do there. First person reenactment. That's a completely different deal. And for all I know, the pheasants hanging there, the guy probably would have pulled it down off the thing and tried to, and taken a bite out of it in front of, in front of the kid. So because first person reenactment, that's a whole nother level of, of, of realness. <laughs> they get, they get, they get real. Yeah. That's uh, having done first person on the boats where there was a script and I knew what I had and could and couldn't say and there was a little program I had to follow. I'm not certain I have this, the skill to do that completely freeform with no one telling me that these are my objectives in first person and that's, I mean I, I applaud those who do. I'm just not certain I could do that. I, I, it's a skill I'd have to learn. I just don't have it myself at, at this time. I'd like to get a good first-person reenactor on the show and talk about that because that's something that Ari and I don't have a lot of experience in, in that first-person side of it. I, I would actually wager that first-person reenactors, I don't know, it could go either way. They either get asked, is that real more? Or they get asked, is that real less? Because they're, they're embodying the, the persona of the person they're reenacting, which may lend a more, a greater sense of, realness to their surroundings and their props right i think the hardest part continuing on this tangent because it's a fun topic to briefly light on and is i find and i would love to hear from someone who does first person regularly 
or proficiently is the language barrier. Because when I was doing 19th century first person, all you had to, I mean, you could get a, a handbook full of archaic vocabulary and turns of phrases and just, you know, you spend a couple weeks reading period literature and treatises and you can pretty much throw on a convincing 1830s dialect without too much trouble. But I don't, when you start go too far back, you got to learn like Middle English. And then if you learn Middle English, how do you talk to anybody? And then of course, where, once you start not speaking in Middle English, how, how do you articulate which boundaries are acceptable to not cross for first person? Because if a true first person impression would speak the language that that person would speak, you know? And so I don't, I, I would love to talk to somebody about it because I find that the whole thought process fascinating. I just don't have any of those answers. Is that accent real? I bet, I, Is that accent I, I bet real, they get right? asked that. <laughs> I bet they get asked uh, that a lot. They might. I don't put on an accent at all, mostly because, you know, you think about like the Shakespearean era English accent probably sounded much more like current American Appalachian folk than it does, you know, London Hugh Grant English in the first place. But I just, I try to avoid that entirely so that my, my verbal presentation is a modern person speaking about a medieval aspect that I am presenting in its physical form. And that sort of obviates all those complications in my eyes. So the, the main Down East accent, which is still alive and well today, has been connected to being sort of closest to, to that of sort of old English, what they think they might have sound, sounded like. Really, really fascinating. That sort of Massachusetts, it's even weird. Main, the main Down East one is even, even thicker than the Massachusetts one, but, that, but that's the one that they, that's a different, that's a totally different. That's a totally different show. Totally different tangent. Yeah. <laughs> Fun times. See? No questions are dumb. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't a question, though. That was just a tangent. <laughs> it was inspired. So. Oh, uh, speaking of, of real, like, kind of first-person-y type things, I know that a question I've gotten that some people have called, you know, stupid is, people asking us whether or not we really sleep there when there's like a timeline event and time and tents are set up. And I know that people get tired of that question, but that's one of those questions that I think it's, it's not unreasonable for people to ask. You've got a tent set up. Why, I don't know why people grate at the idea that someone asks them whether or not they're actually living there or not, especially since we're also down the road from a parking lot full of campers, so there's plenty of clear evidence that some of us don't sleep in the tents themselves. The way I go about it when, I, when I'm getting questions, and, and actually just going into a public event, is I try to look at it as, even if I'm doing the same talk I've done a hundred times, I approach it like I'm doing it for the first time. Because it is the first time for the people that I'm going to talk to. Like, it's like, I've been going to a fourth grade class for four years now. And I've been giving the same talk to them for four years. But it's the first time giving it to each new class. And they all ask different questions. They 
all react differently. They all laugh at different jokes. So it really is the first time doing it for them. Even though I've been to the school for four years and I've done the talk for four years. So, and that's why, you know, if you approach it that way, every question's sort of new. Even if it's one you've answered 2,500 times before, it's, if you approach it, it's the first time, then you'll answer like it's the first time you've answered that question. And, And having that energy of not treating people like they're asking dumb questions, because you treat if somebody asks a, a question that you and you act like it's dumb people aren't going to ask you questions anymore it'll kill the conversation with the audience almost immediately that's just what i found in my in my experience no i i agree with you and that's like it really goes back to what i was saying before is you need to be able to approach any of these questions with the reserving the the patience to acknowledge that this is not it is your job to be above the fact that people have asked this before because every person's first time deserves to have the same level of engagement that the first person who ever asked you that question received and not a jaded response because it's not their fault that they happened that you did this for 10 years and this is the 78th time that you've been asked a question. Uh, isn't that, it's not something they could control. They came here eager to learn something and we should make sure we remember to respect that. And I don't know if it's the case across the board, but I know that sometimes there are people who want to reenact, but don't necessarily, they, they sort of suffer through dealing with the public because it's you know, kind of like one of those you have to pay your dues kind of thing. There, there are many groups that have insular events and public events, and they need the numbers at the public events. So there are people who kind of grin and bear it just to be able to also participate in the training events and the, the closed events. And those are going to be the harder people to reach with this topic. I think the majority of the people who are really engaging in this episode's topic uh, are already... R- they're already prepared to answer that question over and over again, and uh, perhaps are just looking for better answers to the things that they received to do what you were saying before by taking a poorly worded question and elevating it into a better teaching opportunity. So, well, let's talk talk ahead. about that. How do how, I said? Well, then let's talk about that for a little bit. How do you think we go about? elevating or these per, uh, some poorly worded question to figure out what exactly or to give an appropriate level response. Well, you really hit the 101 on that when you we first brought this up, whatever it was, 10 minutes ago, when you talked about identifying the actual question behind the verbiage. Because just because it's poorly constructed on paper, the, the, the assemblage of individual words that doesn't mean that we can't see what they wanted to ask if they had only had the, the knowledge to ask the question in the first place. And that is the biggest thing. Trying to extract the meaning from the articulation is, is the very first step. And so that requires not just responding to the question, but that requires evaluating what the person is interested in in the first place. And so using the... Uh, 
using one of the examples we've already talked about, the whole is the armor real based on the conversation you've had up to this point. And hopefully it isn't just like someone walks straight up and asks you cold, but you know, look at the thing. If you have a, had a chance to observe this person in your camp so far and the things that they're focusing on, and you can get a sense of whether or not they're asking, is this made of a physical, physical properties of, of armor? You know, has this person interacted with other objects so far, like poked and prodded at the gauntlets on the table to see if they're squishy or they're hard? Or, or alternatively, is this person asking other questions about the, the actual, like, lost my train of thought. Like the the provenance of these items, where'd you get them from? How are they like? How are they constructed? So perhaps they're asking a more authentic or artifact related question. Those are the types of things that you can read the people in your camp and try and come to a conclusion on, and that will help guide where you take the answer. Reading people can be very difficult uh, because people especially when in, in public settings can mask themselves very, very cleverly. Um, uh, not even to mention if you're at an event that is requiring actual masks, that could be hard too. make it, make it even harder to read people. But so like Ari said, looking for the signs, are, are they, have they been interested in, in the armor, in touching the armor, in holding it? Have they been asking other questions? Like you said, uh, so guiding using those as sort of guideposts to to steer you towards where they're getting at with their questions and it's like one of the other what's what's one of the other questions that pops up every once in a while that people like to like to laugh at somebody somebody asked if like if their baby was real <laughs> no one's ever asked me if my children were real uh well, but that's that's actually a valid question especially if you have a newborn if you have a newborn, yeah, and I, you're... I never brought a newborn. I had, I've brought very young, like, I think she was five or six at the youngest that I brought her to an event. But she was running around, and so no one really had any questions about her specifically. She just, I think she was more part of the ambiance, like the flags, in, in that, like, she kind of just worked into the background, and no one really She's asked She's obviously an automaton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she was so set dressing. It, <laughs> I think I think the story goes. It's like like uh, a woman had, had given birth a few weeks, like a, had a few weeks old or a few months old baby, and they were at an event and they had the baby like either you know swaddled and strapped to their back or, or or something like that. And one of the people asked if the baby was real, and then this woman got uh, offended because somebody asked if their child was real, and and, and I I can sort of understand taking the offense at it, but at the same time, it's like. Seeing a child swaddled in a medieval fashion, strapped to your back like they would have, that's not an everyday occurrence. That is not an, an, an everyday normal thing that people do. So asking if the baby was real, I, that's sort of a valid question. You could have had been showing off what they would have done and had a doll strapped to your back. But, you know, say, yes, is my baby's real? This, this is a, yes, this is a real baby. And this is how they would have, you know, had to go about their day with them. If they were, especially if they were out working in the field or something, they would have swaddled them in this fashion. So they can't, you know, can't move their arms or legs and, and they would have uh, 
strap them uh, to their back in, in this or put them in a basket or pack basket or something in this fashion and gone about their day to work because having a small child uh, did not stop them from doing their daily chores. Waddling is also a great way to make them sleep. It is, yeah. Although my kids never liked it. My kids They didn't both uh, both my daughters really responded very well to swaddling. I was so there's 10 years between them and I was very proud of how well I was still able to work a a swaddle out of a square of cloth. I was when <laughs> When the second one came around, I was like, oh, can I still do this? And I was like, ha ha, uh, still got it. <laughs> got the, swaddle, the swaddle skill. There you go. Yeah. I've got a, a, another type of question that I think is worth interjecting. And the other type of question that we get a lot are questions that are not really meant to have an answer. They're more designed to establish rapport. Uh, keep in mind that while we're not necessarily celebrities, like we're the presenters and they're just the people who wander through. And so sometimes we'll get questions like, are you hot in that? And it's not just people in armor get that. Anyone effectively who wears anything woolen or more than a t-shirt will from, I'm certain that World War II reenactors wearing wool blouses get it. I'm certain that anyone who isn't a Roman wearing their go-go miniskirts get it. I'm certain that everyone <laughs> probably gets this question, but <laughs> shots fired. I'm never going to look at Romans again in the same way. <laughs> but I don't think this, I, it took a while to, to really sink in. And I had kind of this, one of those like brain click moments where like everything kind of shifted when I realized that it's not, no one asks you if you're hot in armor because they're genuinely surprised that all that sweat on your face came from the fact that you were strapped armor to your body, right? They're doing it mostly because they find it probably you know, a lot of them probably find it funny that you subject yourself to this for fun, you know, and, but a part of it, I think, is just trying to break the ice. A lot of times you're, you're the, the person with all this perceived knowledge and authority. You're the one who is dressed strangely on purpose for the, for the sake of their benefit and their enjoyment. And so coming and talking to someone with that sort of temporarily elevated social situation can make things uncomfortable for some people and so you'll get a lot of these icebreaker questions which honestly maybe even is the fire real could very well fit in that category and so when we talk about elevating how we answer questions that's something to think about if you have a question that's not it's semi-rhetorical you, you, we can use that to try and develop more conversation with people and then as they grow more comfortable talking to us and realize that we're you know approachable uh, especially if they've already been say, to a, a camp with someone who's a little gruffer, or a little more sarcastic, it's a great way to, to demonstrate our open and our interest in talking to them, like you were saying before, that to show them that we're available for deeper conversation, maybe they open up a little bit with their future question. Yeah, that's a good point. Get, using them as, that, like you said, the icebreakers to get them to open up about the future question. That, that goes back to what I said earlier of, you know, if you, if you treat them like they're asking you a dumb question, then they're not going to ask you any more questions. Um, no. I'm sure. Yeah, you just shut them down. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure there's a line. There has to be a line somewhere of someone asking you something and you're just like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to answer that because that is foolish. And I think it's valid to, to, when you get to that point to say that, be like, no, I'm sorry. That's, that's, I'm not going to, I'm not going to answer that question. 
So I, I'm, I'm not sure where that line is, but there has to be one. There's always a line, right? Do you mean questions that are so absurd that they don't have an answer, or ones that are leading you in a direction you don't want to talk about? So I know that... Oh, there's both, yeah. I know that definitely there are, there are conversations... The hobby is... And we don't necessarily dwell on it a lot in this show, but we we are at least aware of the fact that there are subcategories of extremists that gravitate towards the themes of the medieval night, uh, the especially the Crusades. And we, we all know who we're talking about. And while I have never received questions that are clearly intended to walk down that path to kind of like feel out whether or not, hey, are you in this for that reason or or are you in it for other reasons? I can see there being certain questions that are clearly headed in a direction that are not about talking about real history that I would actively uh, resist answering. That's a good, um, that's a good way to put it. To actively resist. I don't know if you've ever received that kind of conversation. Not really. I've never. I've never. I go to a different crowd. I don't do a lot of public adult. Um, shows most of mine is you know school age kids so i don't i don't get into a lot of that um but kids actually they ask better questions than adults a lot of the times uh, it, it's probably the, the the hardest the hardest question i ever was asked was a young a young black girl asked me why artwork only showed european white people and I had to, I had to be honest with her, saying, "You know, that's an excellent question, and I don't really know the answer." I mean, there's, there's multiple levels to different answers of that, but let me, let me find some things, and I'll send them to your teacher for her, for her to give you to look at. I can never remember the name of him. There's that, there's that statue of that knight who is, who's clearly, oh, there's Saint Maurice. A, yeah, that's who we're talking about. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's no, what? I. No, there are there there there's there's plenty of depictions. It's, it's definitely in the minority, though. Yeah, so she, well, she nailed that one. She did nail that, but, but all of the you know, a lot of the ones that that are you know propagated through the internet, through textbooks, and everything, they're picked and chosen you know, specifically for their uses. So. You know whether they're depicting a certain event or whether they're showing you know, it, you know and a lot of things is anglicized in England. You know the England powers that be at that time were predominantly white, but that that that's completely different episode as as well. But yeah, that's that's you got to be willing to say when somebody asks you a question like that, you really you got to be willing to say I don't I don't really know the answer to that, but let me look into it and let me get your contact information and I can, I can get back to you. If you really, if you really want to know and really want an answer, I'll do my best to see what I can, what I can do for you. Um, but yeah, the kid, and that was a, that was a fourth grader that asked me that question. So Dang. yeah. And she, she was, she was on it. I get a lot of questions asked by, you know, teenage girls in high school about, you know, women in battles and things like that. So those are always, difficult to to piece out an answer because there's no there's no definitive and good answer to it 
And a, a, a lot of times, you know, it's like we get asked, asked a lot of questions where we get like we have definitive answers of we know they did this this way and this way. And other questions where we're like, well, we think we know what they did. And it, it, it's that it's that vein of intellectual honesty that Ari and I talk about a lot in this show of knowing when to say, I don't know. But if you really want to find out, let me see if I can put some together the resources for you to, to help you find out. Because that's what a lot of us are here. We're a collective of resource sharers um, that are supposed to be helping out each other when we get to questions like that. But there's also, I mean, I'm, I'm, I said there's no dumb questions, but there's, there's got to be a question somewhere like, not not because of social you know or political pressures that we won't answer them but it's just like no i'm i'm not going to answer that because that's a, that's foolish <laughs> i mean i don't i suspect that modern and early modern reenactors get it more than we do but i suspect if someone asked me like so did you actually participate in this battle i'd be like like what do you, what do you i don't even know what you're trying to ask with something How like do that. i look no, right? Yeah, I'm I, wonderful for 600 years old. It's all, it's moisturizing is the key. People <laughs> moisturize. <laughs> Good skin. Oh. oh, and being a lich, obviously. Vampires. <laughs> but, you're out, but you're out in the middle of the daytime. <laughs> That's why I always wear hats. That's why I always wear the big hats. <laughs> I mean, there are things, I guess I won't call them stupid questions, but there are things where people will answer, I, I will answer for you. I've had people ask a question in the crowd and I'll start to answer it and somebody else in the crowd will be like, oh, well, you know, they use cranes to get up on horses. And you have to sort of walk that back like, well, actually, no. And let's talk about why for a minute. But then those um, people aren't really asking questions, which yeah, the, no. the problem that I have with that is what is that person's interest in going to an event if they're trying to answer questions for the presenters? And I'm certain, I don't know if this happens in other hobbies, because I'm, I'm, it's not like your average professional uh, Derby car racer has question and answer time with the public that then someone can answer for you. Our hobby does have a uniqueness in that we do cater to this sort of amateur public presenter culture. But I've 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 encountered that before where someone has uh, seemingly has all the answers and you're like oh you know. Pump the brakes there. You're you are actively perpetuating mythology that we are tr you know, part of our our purpose here is to dispel. But since they're not asking questions, they're clearly not in a position to be receptive to conversation that challenges their preconceptions. And then, of course, just by telling them they're wrong, we've now made them entrench and defend their position, and we've already lost the lost the fight pretty much. Yeah, I guess it's, um, I don't know, like I said, it's that walk back of let's, let's talk about, 
not say talk about why it's wrong, but let's let's talk about some of the misconceptions that are going on here and, and where they came from. My biggest thing is, you know, uh, one of the things I always like to do is people kids will ask me, it's like, well, if you get knocked down, you, you're you know, you can't get up. Right. And I like, so I'll get down on the ground and I'll get back up. And then I'll be like, you know, no, we were knights were amazingly mobile. They they could you know, run, jump, do all sorts of things. Like I know somebody that can do a full cartwheel in full armor. I can't do a full cartwheel out of armor, so I'm not going to do it for you in armor. <laughs> but you know, they can do these things. And yeah, that's a that's a nod to Josh Warren. He can do if you're if you're ever hanging out with Josh Warren, ask him to do a cartwheel in armor. I've seen videos. He is very athletic. I'd kill myself. <laughs> I would. I would fall. I'd be like, "You want to see me? You want to see a knight that can never get back up again?" I'd do a cartwheel and land, and just be like, "Okay, I'm done. I live here now." It's not because of my armor. <laughs> it's not because of my armor. I live here now. So, to recap, sort of. I know we got some time left, but to, to, to sort of run through what we talked about here. One, approach these things that there are no dumb questions because. Even questions that we feel are, are a little more foolish than the others, they can lead us down a path of getting better questions asked. Two, figure out a way that works for you to try to get to that path, to try to distill whatever these questions might be down to what the person is asking. <coughs> Excuse me. Sometimes you might have to come right out and directly ask them, well, what do you mean by that? You know, and they'll, they'll tell you. They might have to figure it out for a minute, but th then you can figure it out. And that's, the, that's the most direct way to get there. Learning skills of how to read the crowd and you know, see what else they're taking interest in is a, is a huge skill. So you can you know, use what you're seeing to get to those better questions, too. Having having a line where you will not cross for things, you know, like you know, social political, modern social political, things like that, that you won't even go there. That's, those are it's great to set those boundaries and to be firm with them, um, especially when dealing with the public, because you don't want the public taking over for you and, and leading your conversation in a different direction. You want to be the one in charge of the conversation. And yeah, I don't know. Anything you want to add to that, Ari? No, not really. I like what you had to say here. I think one thing I'd like to touch on, though, is we t we've talked a lot about public questions. I think it's fair to devote some time here at the end of the episode to what would be you know, deemed stupid questions from those who are new to the hobby. Because I know that we've talked in the past about people who get jaded uh, towards the annoying newbie questions that seem to crop up, especially when we get people coming to the hobby entirely based off of some new movie. And the, 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 all the people who came, came to Living History because they wanted to wear half visors, or all the people who came to Living History because they saw Kingdom of Heaven, or all the people who came to living history because of whatever recent cult comic anime movie whatever i know we get these floods of people like that and they come with their own constant barrage of 
misconceptions. So I'm certain you know, we should probably talk about a handful of those questions that we always get from newcomers and, and how to address them more with a little more patience and help. Yeah, so it's like I'm trying to think of one question from a newcomer. So in, in the SCA, I guess one of the biggest problems, especially when it comes to like armor, it's, um, you know, people want to buy things to get out on the field. And a lot of times they pull things from the latest, the latest movies. And we have to tell them why something doesn't work for what we're doing. It's like, I, I remember when I first started, I wanted pauldrons with, with Hulk guards. I love Hulk guards. I think they're awesome. I love those big pauldrons with those big Hulk guards. And I wanted a set and no one was going to stop me from getting them. I wish somebody had stopped me from getting them. Even though I still love them. Because they don't they didn't work with the rest of the kit I wanted to put together because they were the totally wrong time period. And they didn't work for the type of combat that the SCA does. They were perfect stick catchers. Basically, instead of, they, they did their job of, you know, you're wearing them, somebody's coming with a lance that hits the lance and stops it from going up into your neck, right? That's what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. That's that's great if you're jousting or if you're on a, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, have a lance and you're riding into battle and stuff like that. When the entire object of a combat system is to to get hit with sticks, having something that catches a stick hit and no. drives it into your neck is not a, is not a good idea. I mean, when you point it out that way, it's I'm I'm really amazed I didn't ruin my rotator cuff getting hit by that so many because literally it would just hit it and it would wrench my entire shoulder up up and out so it, it's they're dangerous and luckily I, I learned fairly quickly i don't want to use those anymore so you know there are things like that people come in they want cool looking armor and when we have to tell them why it doesn't work the way that they want it to but that's not really a question i'm trying to think of like questions that a newbie might ask when they show up first well it a lot of times we get newbies who ask questions about different types of things about whether or not they're allowed to wear something so i think probably one of the most common newcomer questions is can i use they come to a, a 14th century reenactment group because it's the local ones that they saw hanging out at the park. And they're like, can I, can I bring X object to my impression? And to those who are already in the hobby, it's clear and obvious that this doesn't fit to the point where it feels like a ridiculous question to even ask about wearing this flat top crusader helm with your otherwise you know 14th century footman's commoner kit and to us that's like well that obviously doesn't fit but to them they're like look this is all medie cool medieval stuff and it's difficult for them to have developed the eye or like you said about buying things a lot of times you'll have someone who's like where you know is this a good price or is this a good retailer and you're like do you have any idea 
how many people have been ripped off by this particular seller. Well, no, they don't know that because they don't, they haven't been steeped in the hobby. And I guess the only saving, the only benefit you have here is that they asked the question before spending the money instead of just buying something. And you're like, oh man, like you better cancel that Wells Fargo if you can kind of thing. I think one of the, not a, oh, here's a question actually by newbies, especially with the 14th century crowd. Can I wear pants? Oh, yeah. I'm not comfortable in tights. Well, learn to love, learn to love the hosing. <laughs> learn to love hose. <laughs> I can go a few different directions. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess that there, that not comes the distilling of what they want to do out of it. It's like, do you want to reenact? And actually, or or living history reenact and and live or and wear what they actually wore, or do you just want to get a sort of look like sort of like what they did? I you could wear tight pants. So one of the things I used to wear when I fir first started years and years and years ago, especially for combat, was sweatpants that were basically a size too small. And you could sew um, stirrups basically onto the bottom of them. And when you put your boots on and you, you had them hiked up and tied up tight, as long as you were wearing, you know, something over them that, that hid your, your butt area, they looked like you could have been wearing, you know, joined hose or, or high split chosses or something like that. But they weren't, but you weren't really wearing them. So it's like, that's the thing. It's like, do you actually want to feel and, and be like what they did? Or do you just want to sort of look like it? So there's, and there's, of course, every group is going to have to come up with their own, how they want to go about it and what rules they're going to lay down or, and that sort of guides how, what you can do. It goes back to what you said before. Do you want to be the hero or do you want to be the background extra? Mm -hmm. If you just want to be the background extra, yeah, sure. Those, those tight sweatpants, they're going to be fine and you don't have to worry about it. If you want to be the hero up front, you got to wear chosses of some, of some form. Right. That's a good point. And I guess at some point with newcomers, they're, they're going to ask, I guess the biggest thing that bothers people is, can I get away with X? Like you said, can I get away with wearing sweatpants? Because sure, it looks like the Errol Flynn on-screen medieval-esque little tights look because it's got that they gets out that stretch to it. But we we know that there wasn't the same type of stretch in the woven fabrics versus the knitted fabrics that they actually wore. And so those are, I think, the ones that wear people down a lot is the trying to ask for things that are outside of the scope of what otherwise, when they develop a better sense of the medieval aesthetic and the time period you're actually working on, is a question they would never even think to ask because they know the answer. But you have to be able to give them the answer. And sometimes coming up with that answer can be, can be difficult because like, none of us want to be the downer. None of us want to be the bad guy. but. Sometimes yeah. you, you sort of do have to, you, you sort of do have to be the bad guy and, and tell them. Um, and it does, it does wear down sometimes having to be the one to tell someone that they, 
wasted money or that they shouldn't buy something that they think they're going to really like. And that's why I do everything by myself. Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> I get to tell myself that I, I shouldn't buy that thing. And then I storm off and buy it anyway. No, wait, no, that's wrong. <laughs> well, I feel like we have covered most of, short of just ad nauseum yeah. going through every silly question we've ever heard. I got a, I got a question for you, Ari. You can, tell sure. me whether it's, well, you can tell me whether it's dumb or not. How many stars should people give us on whatever they listen to us on? That's not a silly question at all. And of course, the answer is five. Five. Unless, unless there's a six-star version, it's always five stars. Unless there's a ten-star version. Unless your, stars, star. unless your stars go to 11. <laughs> or, so if you listen to us on multiple podcasting platforms, you could give us 15 stars by giving us five stars on each one you listen to us on. I like that. I like cumulative <laughs> stars. <laughs> the power Cute. of the, 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 power. the sum of all stars. The sum of all stars. <laughs> also, it's also, yep. No, go ahead, Ari. Oh, I was going to say it's also not a stupid question as to who made the wonderful music we get to play at the beginning of our episode here, and that would be Paul Butler of Paul Butler's Medieval Music. He allows us to use the music with his permission. You should go listen to his music and buy his album. Link yes, you should. And don't forget to uh, like and follow us on Facebook and uh, join the conversation. Well, how do you how do you um, handle questions that are that are asked to you when you're out at public? Let us know. Let us know in the comments. Join the join our conversation. Absolutely. And if you want to literally join the conversation itself, you can always send us an email or a voice clip to howtomedieval at gmail.com. That's T W O how to medieval at gmail.com and we'll play it on the show and if we get five-star reviews with actual text on them and we we figure out how to find them we'll read them out on the show with a credit to the reviewer so and we plenty of ways to get involved plenty of ways to ask us questions which we will always be happy to answer because none of them are stupid right that's right none of them are stupid that's right we Excellent. promise we won't laugh at you much well at oh, least wait, not no, at all not on <laughs> not on record we laugh at ourselves too much. Well, no, you're right. Not at all. Maybe smirks, <laughs> but no laughing. No laughing. <laughs> Thanks for listening again, folks. Absolutely. Bye, guys. Bye.